Today's show brought to you by Redcon1.com. That's right. Click the link at the bottom of the podcast app in which you are listening to this on. Check them out. Use promo code T20Quartimus. That's right. Redcon1.com. There's nothing special about being American. None of you can define for me what an American is. I am the nation. I was born on July 4th, 1776, and the Declaration of Independence is my birth certificate. The bloodlines of the world run in my veins because I offered freedom to the oppressed. I am many things and many people. I am the nation. I am 200 million living souls and the ghost of millions who have lived and died for me. I am Nathan Hale and Paul Revere. I stood at Lexington and fired the shot heard round the world. I'm Washington, Jefferson, Patrick Henry. I'm John Paul Jones, the Green Mountain Boys, Davy Crockett. Coming to you from the D-Tom Studios in the free state of Florida, sponsored by Maker's Mark Bourbon, this is Don't Tread on America. Your host, Don Q. How's everybody doing out there today? It is October 12th, 2022. Let me get adjusted here. I'm trying to get everything situated. I don't know why I go through these trials and tribulations. Every time I record, I do not even mess with the levels. But it always sounds different. So, anywho. <clears throat> Alright, here we go, here we go. So... Uh, what we're going to do here for the next couple of shows, because as I told you guys, I am going in for a procedure this week. Uh, unsure exactly if or how well I'll be able to talk. Um, therefore, I wanted to get a series of shows together for you guys, and I, I really hope that you uh, enjoy it. The, the funny thing is about doing this and getting prepared for this, I've come across so many different articles in doing this research. Now, a lot of what I'm going to talk about over the next couple of days isn't new. This isn't like breaking news. This didn't come out yesterday. These are stories that have been told for the last um, six years about a certain uh, political family that we know very well. Um, and I'm here to tell you right now, from the readings that I've done, um, and, and I'm guilty just as much as the next person. I voted for, you know, George W. Bush twice. Because um, what we are taught in this country from a very young age, and I'm not even just saying in school, our parents taught us, our grandparents taught us. So, you know, you hear it on the news, you see it on TV. We are told to vote. We are told to get out and vote. Make sure your vote counts. And we are told we have to choose one side or the other. You either got to be a Republican or you got to be Democrat. And if you're a Republican, you have to vote Republican. If you're a Democrat, you have to vote Democrat. Um, it's almost like you're guilted into doing one or the other. There's no option. You, if you're, <laughs> and, and I buck that trend unbeknownst to my stupidity in uh what was it 08 
when I voted for Barack a Democrat, I was a registered Republican, um, thinking I wanted to get out of the norm, out of the, uh, <clears throat> the everyday, um, political, uh, family agendas and, um, looking for an outsider essentially. And Barack Obama sold himself as those bill of goods in which we've come to find out he was basically just a, the same person in a different, he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, I guess would be a good way to put it. Um, and I think we'll do a show on him down the road once I get some more research done and I can show you how he, Barack Obama, the unknown, quote unquote, unknown senator from Illinois, how he fit into all this and it was part of the plan from the get go. Um, not to get off on a tangent, but real quick, Barack Obama was really sent to us as the person who he was. It wasn't, he, he was, what, what they, they did with Barack Obama was essentially sold him as an outsider. He wasn't part of the deep state. He wasn't part of the, the swamp or whatever you want to call it, but he actually was, he was a derivative of those he was just painted in a different color to make it make him look like a different person but like i said that's a story for another day <clears throat> what we're focused on now is the bush crime family now when you think the bush crime family you might think of george daddy bush but this goes way deeper into the bloodlines of the bush family and um <laughs> Essentially, I've got about three stories to tell. So I'm going to combine these three stories into two hours. And um, we'll do an hour for today's show. And then we're going to do an hour for Friday's show. And, uh, and it is what it is. Um, you guys take with it what you want come up with your own decisions I guess ultimately where I'm going with this is once you read this and I like I said I'm guilty of doing a lot of the things and voting for these people because you are raised a certain way whether you're raised democratic or republican whatever we are sold that bill of goods of you have to be that way so if if uh, George Bush is running for president you have to vote for him and it's what's interesting about the primaries you know, so like in 16, when Trump was running, you had Jeb Bush and you had whoever else was running on the Republican side. <laughs> I think the thing, if you really go back and look at especially some of the debates and some of the things that happened, you kind of knew, you know, I don't, I can't name all the players that were that were running at the time, but you had Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush and Trump and whoever else. There was, you know, uh, Huckabee and... Uh, the dude from New Jersey. I mean, there was shit, 10, 20 people <laughs> running for president on the Republican side. You could look at that stage. I mean, I remember looking at that stage and thinking, okay, well, this is pretty much Jeb, Jeb Bush's race to lose. And why did I think that? Now, this was me being ignorant and having doing research like I'm doing nowadays, doing this show. I'm doing a lot more research than I've ever done in my life. Um... You look and you say, okay, well, it's Hillary's to lose on the Democratic side. 
and it's Jeb's to lose on the Republican side. Well, why would I think that? Why would I automatically dismiss Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and Mike Huckabee and who, <clears throat> whoever else was on that stage? Um, it's because that's what we're taught. <laughs> you see Jeb Bush up there, you automatically assume, okay, well, his brother won, his dad won. Surely he's going to win, right? Hillary Clinton, well, her, her husband won. She's a Clinton. Surely she's going to win. Well, on the Democratic side, they held up to their end of the bargain. She won. If you go back and look at some of the debates, you can see the frustration in Jeb Bush's face because he knew he was going to lose, but he was pissed because he was supposed to win. And that's what started the enclave of, of fuckery towards Donald Trump. Now, we don't know that Donald Trump is, is the good guy. I mean, right now, he's opposite of the Bush family, the Clinton family. He is opposite of them. Whether he's an opposite good or an opposite bad, it remains to be seen. We don't know yet. Um, during his time as president, he was just bombarded with Russian this and Russian that. And he was a spy, and he was this, and he was a stooge, and he was that. And PP tapes, and, uh, you know, the, the doctrines, and, the, you know, the whatevers. And it was like... In between all that, he was actually able to do some good things, or what we thought were good things, or think are good things. Um, you know, you could also make the argument that maybe he lost on purpose because he knew the economy was going to go to shit with Corona. He knew all these things were going to happen. I don't know. Once again, research comes and goes, and we have to keep digging. But right now, we're focused on the Bush family. And these, these are going to be titled The Bush Crime Family. But before we get into that, I want to remind you of our new sponsor to the show, Christian Lawson Watches. Check them out at christianlawson.com. Use promo code DTOM at the checkout and get 30% off your purchase price. 30% off, guys. Um, like I said, they're sending me two more watches this month in October. Uh, I think what I'm going to do is go ahead and do a contest and uh, give them out to some of our listeners. Um, I'll have a man's and a female, woman and a man's watch. Um, we'll do that. And if, and if it goes well, we'll do it again in, in November. So check us out on social media at Don't Tread on America on Instagram and Facebook and on Twitter at DTOM underscore 1775. And check us out on our website, DontTreadOnAmerica.com. All right. So let's get into the shit. I was telling my wife about this and all this stuff I'm doing. I said, the interesting thing is, is if this podcast was bigger, I would probably get a knock on the door. But we'll see. You guys uh, tell me what you think. Please follow us on social media. and uh, and just. But before also, whatever podcast app you're listening to this on, if you could please subscribe to the show, share this with your friends. If the... If you're on Apple or um, Spotify, if you could give us a five-star rating, that would be great. And um, <clears throat> let's go. Are you ready? Are you ready? I don't know if you're ready. Let's see if you're ready. All right. The Bush family are by far the greatest example of a, of a successful American crime family. No other American family can claim the kind of success that the Bush family has. Over the past century, we must give credit where credit is due. 
So Samuel Bush, if you don't know who that is, he's a guy named Samuel Bush. No, he would be the great-great-grandfather of George and Jeb Bush. Okay, so Samuel Bush was a very successful businessman. He was instrumental in organizing the military-industrial complex with the, Har with the Harriman family and the Remington Gun and Ammo Company. Together, they conspired to orchestrate World War I and made billions of dollars in 1917 money. Today, that would make them trillionaires. So Samuel's son, Prescott, Prescott Bush, which would have been the grandfather of George and Jeb, was another very successful businessman. He began as an amazing tire salesman, then by marrying into the Walker family. So Walker family, right? George H.W. Herman Walker Bush um, became a banker with the Brown brothers and Harriman. So if that sounds familiar, that's the same Harriman that, that Prescott's dad was involved with in starting World War I. So BBH, along with other Zionist banking cartel known as Kuhn Loeb and Company, conspired to orchestrate World War II and the Nazi takeover of Europe. In fact, Prescott Bush and his close Skull and Bones buddies, Averill Harriman, had a bank in Manhattan, which had its assets seized by Jager, uh, J. Aker Hoover and the FBI under the Trading with the Enemies Act. That happened not once but twice to the Union Banking Corporation in New York City. A documented fact which is undeniable. So Prescott's son, George H.W. Bush, is also a very successful, or was also a very successful businessman, politician, and CIA agent. So most people don't know that George Bush was in fact a CIA agent as, as early as the late 40s. And possibly the well, the early fit late forties, early fifties. Nobody's a hundred percent sure exactly when he became an agent, but we do know for sure it was before nineteen fifty three. We now know that he was directly involved and responsible for the orchestration orchestrated assassination of both JFK and RFK. That too is a documented fact, which somehow has managed to avoid major exposure. So if you guys recall, if you go back, if you've listened to our DTOM files, JFK, I brought up the fact that Bush was there and we kind of brushed it off. But there is documented proof that he was there, that he was involved in this whole situation. So um, we know as a fact that Prescott Bush groomed Richard Nixon for his political career and was expected to have George Bush run um, on the 68 Republican ticket as uh, Nixon's vice president. But Nixon, knowing what Bush did to JFK because he was in Dallas that day, chose um, Agnew as his running mate because he knew Bush would assassinate him in order to be president without being elected. When Nixon refused to go along with the plan, Bush and his CIA cohorts conspired to destroy Nixon's political career in the Watergate scandal, which worked brilliantly. Bob Woodward himself was a CIA stooge from the Office of Naval Intelligence. All while Nixon, the ass, the evil scum that he was, 
was escal uh, escalating the war in Vietnam by invading and carpet, bom carpet bombing Cambodia. So real quick, Bob Woodward, CIA stooge. So this was back in, <clears throat> what, early 70s? Why does that name sound familiar? Okay, well, he was part of the Woodward and Bernstein, the, the writers for the New York or the Washington Post or Time, whoever he they were with at the time. But he has resurfaced, or he has resurfaced in the last couple of years uh, to go against Trump. So that's the things that kind of makes me think Trump might be on the right side of things. When you see familiar names coming up from 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago, coming up to say, oh, hey, yeah, blah, blah, you know, whatever, like Bob Woodward, what the fuck? I mean, he was relevant back in the early 70s. 50 years later, he's he's resurfaced. What the hell old is this dude? You know, it's like they, they prop these people up because they're famous for doing something 50 years ago. Maybe they can do the same thing now. So at this time, George Bush's son, George Bush, the other... So I should say it like this. Okay, uh, Daddy Bush, his son, George Bush, was supposed to be um, in the Texas military reserves. He was assigned to a unit known as the uh, the Cham Champagne Unit. <clears throat> so now this was during the Vietnam War. Um, they were brave soldiers that patrolled the skies of Texas looking for Viet Vietnamese invaders. The problem is that George uh, W. Bush never completed his service as a reserve pilot and went AWOL from the base in Louisiana and was never seen again at any military base. Nobody has ever come forward and claimed to have ever seen George W. Bush at any military base in Louisiana, but he claims he graduated from there. And uh, so, by the way, just in case y'all didn't know, it's a federal offense to go AWOL, especially at a time of war. All right. George H.W. Bush had many different businesses, all of which were quite successful for rather mysterious reasons. Zapata Oil, Zapata Offshores, Dresher Industries, and a bunch of others were very suspicious. His business ties in Colombia are interesting to say the least. Not to mention his friends in Panama and other Central American nations. One of uh, George H.W. Daddy, we'll call him Daddy Bush. One of his uh, closest CIA buddies, a piece of garbage known as Alan Dulles, was prominent attorney for the United States. Uh, fruit company and had strong business interests in Central America. Together, Bush and Dulles assassinated a president, orchestrated a CIA war in Vietnam, and used the military to import drugs into the U.S. Let's not forget that they had huge Nazi mind control pro program going on at the same time where they were using LSD and rock musicians to experiment on American, British, and Canadian and other uh, nation civilians without their knowledge or consent. The program was and is still known as Operation MK Ultra, which was in fact a Nazi mind control program that was brought to America under Operation Paperclip. So you heard me just mention the name Alan Dulles. Surely that sounds familiar. He was part of the Warren Commission, who was integral in the cover-up of what actually happened in Dallas that day in November. Convenient how these people are part of the problem, but then they're also part of the quote-unquote solution. So 
it is believed that Dulles, and I'll get into to this a little bit later, that Dulles and Bush orchestrated this whole thing against Kennedy. Both the Kennedys, but we're, we'll focus on JFK. Um, then, <laughs> the Warren Commission puts uh, Dulles in charge of, the, of this commission to find out what happened. Well, surely, he's going to find out what needs to have happened. Therefore, they can pin it on one person, Lee Harvey Oswald. Not saying that he wasn't involved, but surely you can't sit there and look at the facts and say that one person did this. So many of us are familiar with um, George W. Bush and his criminal activities involving the conspiratorial orchestration of 9-11 with the Mossad of Israel and British agents as well. These criminals have targeted the American people and American as a sovereign, independent nation, which it isn't and probably never really was, especially at the establishment of central banking in America, particularly the Federal Reserve Bank, which is an illegal private bank and was created by a man named Paul Wahlberg, who was a satanic Hebrew Zionist and an agent of the Rothschild family in of Bavaria along with the Oppenheimer and Schiff families as well. So before we read on here, you recall those names, you go back and listen to the Rothschilds show I did, the Rothschilds and NWO, and also the 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati. These names all pop up. These are names that are known in their fuckery, so to speak. So Schiff went on to fund the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which murdered tens of millions of Orthodox Jews and paved the way for Marxist communism and um, a convenient enemy of America. So real quick, now this is where the tie-in from the show I did the other day, the uh, Kazarian Mafias, part one and two, these names are popping up again. Again, we talked about the history of the Ukraine, right? And what did we talk about? The Bolshevik Revolution. The USSR, Ukrainian Soviet states, right? So it paved the way for Marxist communism. And um, of course, many of us know Oppenheimer went on to help the mastermind the creation of the first atomic weapons that were used against innocent civilians under the guise of war. But it was actually another Nazi experiment that was being employed against innocent civilians. American is, in fact, a Zionist nation, and America has been controlled by Satan. Um, I'm sorry, by Satanic Hebrew Zionists for more than the past century, at least Great Britain, much longer than that, thanks to the Rothschild family. They bring war, misery, and human suffering whenever they set foot or have a business interest. So let's not forget about Jeb Bush. So Jeb Bush is believed to be a British agent. His entire family are elite bloodlines of Europe or Great Britain. They definitely have very strong ties in Scotland, especially with the Gamble family. Bill Gamble is, or was at least, George H.W. Bush's very close friend. The purpose of the Bush family is to behave like a parasite, sucking the blood and life force from its host. Um... The Bush family have done an extraordinary job at sucking the blood of the American people as well as its monetary life force of the nation 
by creating fake terror attacks, fake wars, just to make profits and exhaust the monetary system to the point of weakness, if not collapse. Um, you know, I really feel sorry for any American, and, and I include myself in this, that was naive to vote for these people who were direct descendants of a long line of criminals, a true crime family. Um, and you, if you notice, we've talked a lot about um, the Bush family in here, and we're talking about Skull and Bones. So we know for a fact that Prescott, George H.W., and George W. were all part of the Skull and Bones. I'm not sure about Jeb. Um, and there's a possibility that, that Prescott's father, Samuel, was also Skull and Bones. So I think probably what we're going to do in this, and I have more to talk about here. I'm, I just want to take a little break in between here. Um, the Skull and Bones faction is very interesting because who else in American politics or, or any other country for that matter, it's not like only Americans went to Harvard or Yale or wherever it's from. Who, oh, well, Yale, okay, I'm sorry. Um, Skull and Bones of Yale. So who else in this world of leadership, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not just talking about American presidents or senators, Congress people, whatever. I'm talking about other nations' leaders were involved in Skull and Bones. And what does Skull and Bones have to do with a lot of this? That would be interesting to do. So we'll probably have to do a Skull and Bones show also. But let's continue on with our Bush crime family uh, situation here. All right. So, you know, what we are taught about history in American schools, it's not history, but a fairy tale. Better yet, it's propaganda designed to hoodwink an unsuspecting society about its true heritage and treasonous acts and sabotage that were conceived in order to bring in about a new world order. You are about to learn the real identities of those who have infiltrated your nation on behalf of secret societies intent on bringing about a total slavery of mankind. In the past, others have written about the numerous conspiracies to control natural resources, energy, food, and our sovereign right to live on planet Earth. Not as slaves of a wealthy few, but as free men, women, and children exercising the free will given to them by God. So, <clears throat> real quick. So just on that situation there, American school, this, they're not, we're not, our kids, we are, the history that, if you recall, and if you have kids, the history that we were taught as kids is different than the history that they're being taught nowadays. And I'd be willing to bet the history that we were taught was different than what our parents or our grandparents or whatever were taught. Why is that? Because, granted, history is always evolving, but certain points of history should never evolve. If, if um, World War II was World War II, it was World War II. Why does that history change? Why, why do certain situations in history change, or why do they all of a sudden get left out? Well, it's because there's a saying that history is written by the winners, Right? If you if you lose if you lose a fight your history your your version of history is going to be different than what the winner's version of history is going to be I guarantee you in 
the uh, 1950s in Germany, especially in like Eastern Germany, I guarantee you their history books taught World War II in a different manner. And parts of, you know, in that whole Soviet bloc from Eastern um, Germany East, if they taught history, I'm sure they did, I guarantee you their version of history was different than the West's version of history. And that's, it's interesting. So you hear the East and the West. And that's where that came from. So after World War II, Germany was split in half. And some of you guys may not remember this or, or you might be too young, depending on how old you are listening to this. But back before nine, in back in the eighties, prior to then, from whenever World War II ended and treaties were signed, I think it was fifty-one, somewhere around there, Germany was split in two. So Germany prior to this time was was Germany. Then it split. So for my whole life, up until the late eighties, early nineties. There was an East Germany and a West Germany. There was two Germanys, <laughs> believe it or not. And there was this dividing line. It was called the Berlin Wall. And that's where the terms the West and the East came from. That was your dividing point. I know it sounds crazy because, you know, it's the prime meridian, blah, 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 whatever. But that was your dividing point. <laughs> um, and that's why you hear terms like the Far East referring to like China or Japan or whatever, when really it's closer to go from California to, to Japan that way because, you know, and you think, well, it's West, it's not East. But nonetheless, that's how the terminology came about. But um, so point being is history is written by the winners and the losers. So surely it, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, history in this part of the country was taught differently than what we were taught um they might not even have taught about world war ii it might have been a whole nother situation it might have been pushed on the propagation of uh oh they were invaded by whomever and they were forced to do this and they were forced to do that and that's how you get people to believe that it's hard for them to believe it's hard for americans to hear what's going on in ukraine and with russia it's hard to believe what's being said you can't believe what Putin's being told what he's telling us because he's Putin he's Russian he's a liar because that's the way we are taught all right so imagine if you were a member of a secret organization whose sole agenda was to control the entire planet if your plan was to accomplish this goal without being perceived by your intended victims Discretion would be paramount. Your organization would devise a series of historical events that on the surface would appear to be everyday happenstance occurrences, natural disasters, man-made disasters, acts of murder, assassination, terror, manipulation of money and energy supplies, contamination of food, pollution of natural resources, and war. The timing of these events would require patience, careful planning, Cooperation from others in positions of trust, stealth, and deceit. In essence, the whole mission must derive its power through deception and concealment and must have a master plan. So who were the designers of this master plan? So 
this is a, a long list and we might not even finish this list in this series in this show we might this might bleed into the part two so just bear with me so arrival of the bankers at the turn of the 20th century a plan to slowly take over the government of the united states began to unfold many many works have been written about the nazi machine that instigate two world wars though few have traced the footsteps of the foreign financiers and the actors we prefer to call quote-unquote politicians. A brief glance at shipping records, passenger manifest, and financial transactions on Wall Street indicates a pattern of deception which was masterminded by the same machine. The level of cooperation from government agencies and their elected officials was not only disgraceful, but blatantly treasonous. So, in his book, The Creature from Jekyll, uh, Jekyll, Jekyll Island, author G. Edward Griffin described a secret meeting which created the Federal Reserve in 1913. The architect of the plan, Paul M. Warburg, Warburg I'm sorry, was a representative of the Rothschild banks in England and France. His brother Felix headed the Warburg banks in Germany and the Netherlands. Of significance is the fact that the first official meeting reported about the Federal Reserve occurred three years later in Leslie's Weekly. Forbes described the secret meeting between the Republican Senator Nelson W. Aldrich and six of the most powerful bankers in the world. That his meeting had to be conducted in secret, clandestine island locations, um, indicates the level of deception, concealment, and treason at work. So, who's Paul Warburg? So, he was a German national, spoke English well enough to craft a financial document, a document actually consisting of 1,750 pages, resulting in the Federal Reserve Act designed to control the finances of the United States from Europe. This was no small feat. Of particular interest was how Warburg was able to establish these important connections prior to his arrival in the U.S. in 1913 and then orchestrate his financial coup. Warburg had to have known his co-conspirators before coming to America. So the first official record of Paul Warburg's trip to the U.S. appeared in the Kaiser Wilhelm Passenger Manifest upon arrival at Ellis Island, October 13th of 1903. The official manifest lists M, or I'm sorry, Mr. P. Warburg, age 35, occupation banker, nationality American, heritage German, last residence Hamburg, final destination New York, and he gives an address. In fact, Paul Warburg claimed he was an American in 1903. Was his claim valid? Of special of special interest. In this October 13, 1903 man, uh, passenger manifest is the fact that another prominent passenger in the elite financial community were also on the same passenger manifest. Harry Sachs, that's the same gentleman of Goldman Sachs fame, is listed as a passenger, but unlike Wahlberg, he was not required to declare his destination or his address. In fact, of the 30 passengers listed on the 290 on page 293 of the 
Ellis Island database of ship and passenger arrivals, Paul Warburg was the only passenger required to de declare his destination. Was this an attempt to establish Warburg's nationality? Suspiciously, um, the second half of the page is missing from the database, so we are not privi privileged with pertinent and the official information of this page, uh, I'm sorry, of this place of birth, nor his physical description um, on this occasion. Future analysts of the Port of New York should shed more light on these issues. The record keeping by the Immigration Office on October 13th of 03 was not merely sloppy. It appears that Wahlberg and other passengers were not scrutinized to the extent required by law and were um, assisted in entering the country with special yet illegal considerations. Unlike earlier or later arrivals, immigration officers were permitted or instructed to be lax and observe uh, negligent in their duties, particularly there were destinations and birthplace were concerned. Warburg's second arrival to the U.S. on the SS Deutschland was similar to his first. Although still a U.S. citizen in 05, he was demoted to merchant. However, on the third arrival of 06, Warburg once again a banker, his memory had failed him on his third trip when he declared he had never been to the U.S. previously. <laughs> neither he, neither had his wife and two children who had traveled with him to prior trips. He had also forgotten about his home in New York City, too. When he claimed he had no address in the United States on the visit, Warburg declared, declared Hamburg, Germany as his place of birth. Incredibly, on a later visit to the U.S., Warburg claimed he was officially a natural citizen, citing the circuit court in New York City March 21, 1911 as his place and date where he began, where he had been bestowed his citizenship. Despite Warburg's earlier proclamations, he was not declared a U.S. citizen until that time. Uh, Warburg, I swear to God, right now we got to do yard work. Is that what we're doing here? Warburg thereby committed perjury and was overlooked on numerous occasions by the Immigration Service officials and seemingly an act of treason on each occurrence during subsequent visits to the U.S. In 1910, 12, and 13, while again proclaiming his U.S. citizenship, Warburg referred to 17th East 80th Street, New York, as his home address. Not once was there any mention of his associating with the Rothschilds Bank in Paris and London and his permanent resi residency in Europe, not America. Why did the deception? All right, so next on the list is James Loeb. So, not to be outdone, James Loeb, a partner at Kuhn Loeb and, Bank, and, and Company Banking, was a firm in New York City, traveled with Warburg on October 13, 1903. Loeb declared his U.S. citizenship on his trip, though he apparently suffered from amnesia in, in, 19, in 2010. In 1910, <laughs> neglecting to declare any country of origin, and later in 1912 declaring to be U.S. Immigration Service that his birthplace was Landsberg, Germany, a small town west of Munich. Loeb also indicated that he was uh, staying with Mr. Walt Warburg. So I think the interesting thing is this, is these, these folks, you come to see, 
from the early 1900s, you know, 1903 onward came. And obviously, it's not like you jump on a plane and fly over real quick. You got on a boat and it took a took a minute to get here from from uh, Europe. Um, obviously, forgot their lies. The bad thing was, is back in those days, obviously, we didn't have computers. So, like, if you keyed in, you know, nowadays, if you keyed in someone's name, if you, you know, the first time they showed up, you might have it on record. Okay, uh, James Loeb was here in uh, 03, declared, you know, U.S. citizenship. And then later on, he came back and forgot. Well, you would have it in the system. So, I mean, it is what it is, obviously. 1903, we didn't have computers. So what are you going to do, right? Obviously, it didn't come out till after the fact when they had the bookkeeping. They could see that these people once did and once didn't, nonetheless. Amnesia must have been a disease that plagued most German bankers at the turn of the century. <laughs> the disease didn't stop there as soon spread into institutes or higher education. Harvard Press, Harvard University Press published a memorial biography, biography to the founder of the Loeb Classic, Classical uh, Library, bequeathed to Harvard University by none other than James Loeb one year after his death in, two, in nine, why do I want to say 2000? In 1933, James Loeb was born August 6th, 1867 in New York City the son of Solomon and Betty Goldberg Loeb. Um, Solomon was a partner and uh, founder of the banking firm Kuhn Loeb and Company. The tribute began. Certainly, Harvard University would have been known where Loeb was born, or they would have known where he was born, for that matter. So would have Loeb. <laughs> if his quotation were true, then... Uh, what would have caused Loeb to state in 1912 that he was born in Landsberg, Germany. So, it's like, was he born in New York? Was he born in Germany? It's like, why, why all this deception? The Harvard Press biography did little to legitimize the, the matter of Loeb's birthplace, though it was a valiant attempt. <clears throat> so, I'm not going to read on here more about Loeb. It's... It's got a whole bunch of crap here. I think the key, one of the keys here is, so far we're mentioning names, Loeb and Warburg. So if you recall earlier, I was talking about their uh, Jeb and George's great-grandfather and also their, their grandfather who worked for these people. They had involvement with these people in the early 1900s. That's that's kind of so you might be thinking, well, what is Paul Warburg and what does James Loeb have to do with with the with the uh, Bush crime family? It's when when you talk about a crime family, like when you look at um, if you watch gangster movies, not like I'm talking like you know uh, you know back in the 30s and shit like that. You talk about the uh, uh, shit. All the names are escaping me right now, but you know what I'm talking about. New York gangsters. Those types of names. Those were, they were a family. It wasn't necessarily, you know, one particular name. There was a group of people that brought forth of this, the quote-unquote family. Um, <laughs> Alright, so the next name on the list here is Nikolai Tesla. 
So we all know that name sounds familiar. So he was born in Croatia. Uh, Tesla was a citizen of Austrian origin. He was a son of a Serbian Orthodox priest who rose to the rank of Archbishop. Tesla had the opportunity to study a very variety of topics contained to his father's personal library. As a young boy, he accompanied his father on trips to Rome, where he was able to study the lesser-known works of stored in the Vatican's vast scientific uh, repository. Um, I'm going to just kind of skip around here. I'm not going to read all his, his upbringing and his learning. So, um, we all, we all know that when Tesla came to the States, he started working for Edison. Um, he, he, uh, left, he found it difficult to work for Edison, mainly because Edison wasn't paying him, but he soon found bankers to finance his research and development projects for his new adventures. Uh, inventions. Financiers such as J.P. Morgan, George Westinghouse, and John Jacob Astor were among those who saw the potential in Tesla's pioneering and entrepreneurial spirit to capitalize on his technology, discoveries, and electricity, wireless communication, and physics. The only official documentation of Nikolai Tesla's arrival to the United States was again produced at the Port of New York, on April 7, 1882, a 25-year-old Tesla arrived via SS Norlin, which departed from Antwerp. He had returned on a trip to the U.S. after lecturing in Paris. Tesla's destination, New York, Tesla immigrated as a laborer, though his label hardly befit the man who would become the most prolific inventor in history, with some 700 te technological patents to his credit. Previous accounts of Tesla's association with Thomas Edison projects placed him on the United States in the 1870s. His many te technological discoveries were certain to have drawn the attention of those hungry for world, world domination and superiority. By and large, Tesla's inventions and his career were excluded from our history books because his inventions and patents were stolen and then weaponized. It was never intended for us to learn about the suppression of Tesla's advanced scientific discoveries, nor about those who profited from their theft, the, uh, the orchestrators of the master plan. Though much has been written about Tesla's success and failures, few have detailed the behind-the-scenes financial activities which disclose a Nazi plot to acquire his technology. While research and development costs had largely been paid unknowingly by U.S. taxpayers, many of Tesla's patents fell into Nazis' hands prior, uh, prior to and during the war, war, World Wars I and II. As a result, Tesla continuous, continuously found himself in litigation over patent rights and other issues. Although he had succeeded in winning a majority of patent lawsuits. His technology had been repeatedly stolen and sold to German Nazis and other foreign governments. So he never achieved the financial success he, had, he deserved. The embezzlement of his capitalization went unchecked throughout Tesla's career and at the time of his death or murder, according to some people, on January 6th of 1943, Tesla died virtually penniless. So, one of Tesla's assistants, George H. Scherf, 
Sr. So Nikolai, his uh, Tesla's successes in discovering new technologies did not go unnoticed by many industrial capitalists and world governments. In fact, many of his inventions were developed through secret government programs, which began soon after his discoveries in altering in alter, alternating currents and electromagnetic energy, electric motors, generators, coils, radio transmissions, energy-saving devices, and wireless transmission technologies. So, before I read on, think about this. These were Tesla's inventions. We've never heard... I mean, we recently have started to learn about what Tesla actually did for this for this country, for the world, really, not just this country. Um, it is believed that Edison's energy, like you see jokes and you see cartoons and Edison's living in a house with electricity and everyone's in the dark. Ha, ha, ha. But it's believed that his form of currency would, was dangerous. It was, it was, it could kill people. And, and, and it's, it's around today. It's not, we're not using it. But it's really the combination of both of their ideas. It's the ACDC. Not the rock band, but that's the current. Alternating current, direct current, right? Um, but also, electric, I mean, Tesla, obviously, thus the reason why, why uh, what's his face? I can't, like I said, names escape me. When I'm on focused on a thing, I, I can't think of other people's names. I'm sorry. But uh, the car company, Tesla, that's why it's called Tesla, because Tesla is actually credited with inventing the electric motor back in the early 1900s, right? So um, these things were, were essentially stolen through secret government programs, were, were developed, radio transmissions, walkie-talkies, uh, CBs, those types of things, um, to help the the military wireless transmission technologies like you think about it back in the 70s they had gps on military vehicles well we never saw didn't see gps until like the early 90s but it had been around for 15 20 years almost prior to the american public being able to utilize gps and these are some of the things that were designed and created by the ideas of Tesla. So you could see why like Tesla's ideas were brilliant. Like Edison got the fame and got the fortune, but Tesla's ideas were far superior to what Edison had. But they were so superior that they couldn't let them out, so they stole them. And this um sheriff was was partly responsible for that. Since Tesla was often buried deep in research at remote labs, many of his financial and legal affairs were supervised by his closest associate, George H. Scherf. Scherf also, uh, often advised Tesla about pending patent litigation, contracts, proposals, demonstrations, and financial affairs. Um, as any trusted associate would, Scherf stood beside Tesla through all the ups and downs of his financial nightmares sometimes arranging for extended credit with um, at the Waldorf Astoria with Tesla often resided or by obtaining cash advantage through research he had been uh, contracted to perform. Near the end of his career, Tesla was evicted from the Waldorf for a standing bill which exceeded $20,000. 
As Tesla worked on secret U.S. government projects at Colorado Springs, Scherf commuted, or I'm sorry, communicated to Tesla the status of his business affair. Tesla spoke of hopeful future financial successes, though Sheriff repeatedly de uh, delivered the news of dwindling funds. Tesla had begun construction of a wireless power transmitter, a wireless power transmission tower. <laughs> um, so, um, with funds invested by J.P. Morgan, when Morgan discovered that the tower would transmit free electricity and radio waves, he canceled the project and had the tower dismantled, then sold for scrap. Tesla, uh, Morgan was not about to allow Americans to receive free electricity, television, and radio. Tesla was devastated when he received the news, but continued on with his new inventions. So, he created this tower, the Tesla Tower. We've heard about that. We've heard about it more recently. That... I don't know exactly how it worked, but it had something to do with the Earth's atmosphere and whatever was able to create electricity that was free. Much in the way that we get radio waves and TV waves. I mean, not so much now. TV's pretty much obsolete. It's all cable. But all that stuff, you would have gotten for free. You would have had an antenna at your house. You would have gotten power for free. Well, obviously, as a businessman, J.P. Morgan couldn't have that happen, right? So, um... Some 12 years later, on October 14, 1918, Sheriff wrote to Tesla at Colorado Springs. The correspondence focused on the usual disclosure of pending legal issues and attorney manners that was sent to Tesla on Tesla Company. Letterhead containing the company's headquarters address was 8th, 8 West 40th Street, New York, New York. On October 15, 1918, the next day... Um, Tesla responded to Sheriff's letter. It seemed impossible regarding our understanding of the technology available at the time, but these dates attached to the correspondence. Yeah, because if it was mailed and he was in Colorado and he was in New York, how did he get it a day later and was able to respond? An interesting anomaly. Tesla's response was addressed to George Sheriff Esquire, Union Sulphur Company, 17 Battery Place, New York, New York. Union Sulphur Company. So Union Sulphur Company. This address was not the location of the Nikola Tesla Company. All right. So I think what we're going to do here, we're about at the hour mark. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna riff on real quick about this Tesla situation because the next one goes into the Rockefellers, and it also continues on with um into who is George Sheriff and, and whatever. So I'm going to, that's probably another 30 minutes. But interesting, if you think about the Rockefeller, or not the Rockefeller, if you think about the Tesla situation, um, how he was so involved in his research and what he was doing that he had hoped, he was naive. I mean, I guess that would be the best word for it. Smartest man probably of his time I would be I'd willing to bet but dumb in the fact of his trust for other people and um, and you'll see what I'm talking about here on the part two of this and what I mean by this is um, he was so involved in doing the things he was doing to create his inventions and he was distraught 
like, okay, here, here's an invention for free, free electricity. No, we can't have that. He was mad, but he continued on with his research. Um, he was one of these guys that was probably too smart for his own good, but had no common sense. And, you know, you probably all have met these people in your life at one time or another. You've met somebody that was smarter than, than words could describe, but had absolutely no common sense, no street smarts, nothing, no wit about them other than the book smarts. Smart man, obviously, probably still, we're still getting into his inventions today, a hundred years later. And the sad thing is, is he nor his family is, is profiting off of any of this. So with that being said, guys, please make sure you share this with your friends and, um, Subscribe to the page, uh, whatever podcast app you're listening to this on, subscribe. Um, please share this with your friends. Uh, if you're on Apple or Spotify, if you give us a five-star rating, that'd be great. And like I said, uh, follow us on social media, Don't Tread on America on Facebook and Instagram. And then um, on DTOM on Twitter, DTOM underscore 1775. And look for upcoming situations where we'll do a giveaway on some uh, Christian loss and watches. And uh, with that being said, guys, you have a great day. It is Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. And uh, just stay tuned for part two um, coming up on Friday. And uh, I just really hope you guys enjoy this. And we're going to continue on with these types of series, barring any kind of breaking news or something uh, fascinating happening in world events. All right, guys, you have a great day. And I'll talk to you again later.